0: Chapter 13. And finally, is there anything that one can do about it? In the first part of his book, I illustrated, by a few brief sidelights, the kind of mess that we're in. And in the second part, I've been trying to explain why, in my opinion, so many normal, decent people are repelled by the only remedy, namely by socialism. Obviously, the most urgent need of the next few years is to capture those normal, decent ones before fascism plays its trump card. I do not want to raise here the question of parties and political expedience. More important than any party label, and though doubtless the mere menace of fascism will presently bring some kind of popular front into existence, is the diffusion of socialist doctrine in an effective form. People have got to be made ready to act as socialists. There are, I believe, countless people who, without being aware of it, are in sympathy with the essential aims of socialism and who could be won over almost without a struggle if only one could find the word that would move them. Everyone who knows the meaning of poverty, everyone who has a genuine hatred of tyranny and war, is on the socialist side, potentially. My job here, therefore, is to suggest, necessarily in very great terms, how a reconciliation might be effected between socialism and its more intelligent enemies. First, as to the enemies themselves, I mean, all those people who grasp that capitalism is evil, but who are conscious of a a sort of a queasy, shuddering sensation when socialism is mentioned As I pointed out, this is traceable to two main causes. One is the personal inferiority of many individual socialists, and the other is the fact that socialism is too often coupled with a fat-bellied, godless conception of progress, which revolts anyone with a feeling for tradition or rudiments of an aesthetic sense. Let me take the second point first. Distaste for progress and machine civilization, which is so common among sensitive people, is only defensible as an attitude of mind. It's not valid as a reason for rejecting socialism because it presupposes an alternative which does not exist. When you say, I object to mechanisation and standardisation and therefore I object to socialism, you are in fact saying... I am free to do without the machine if I choose, which of course is nonsense. We are all dependent upon the machine, and if the machine stopped working, then most of us would die. You may hate the machine civilization, probably, or right to hate it, but for the present, there can't be no question of accepting or rejecting it. The machine civilization is here, and it can only be criticised from the inside because all of us are inside it. It's only romantic fools who flatter themselves that they've escaped, like the literary agent in the Tudor cottage with the bathroom hot and cold and the he-man who goes off to live a primitive life in the jungle and a manikla, rifle and four wagon-loads of tinned food. And almost certainly the machine civilization will continue to triumph. There is no reason to think that it will destroy itself or stop functioning of its own accord. For some time past, it's been fashionable to say that war is presently going to wreck civilization altogether. But, though the next full-sized war will certainly be horrible enough to make all previous ones seem a joke, it is immensely unlikely that it will put a stop to mechanical progress. It is true that a very vulnerable country like England, and perhaps the whole of Western Europe, could be reduced to chaos by a few thousand well-placed bombs, but no war at present thinkable which could wipe out industrialism and all countries simultaneously. We might take it that the return to a simpler, freer, less mechanised way of life, however desirable it may be, is not going to happen. And that's not fatalism, it's merely acceptance of facts, it's meaningless to oppose socialism on the ground that you object to the beehive state, for the beehive state is here. The choice is not, as yet, between a human and an inhuman world. It's simply between socialism and fascism, which at its very best is socialism with all the virtues left out. The job of the thinking person, therefore, is not to reject socialism, but to make up his mind to humanise it. Once socialism is on the way to being established, well, those can see through the swindle of progress will probably find themselves resisting. In fact, it is their special function to do so. In the machine world, they have got to be a sort of permanent opposition, which is not the same thing as being an obstructionist or a traitor. But in this... I'm speaking of the future. For the moment, the only possible course for any decent person, however much of a Tory or an anarchist by temperament, is to work for the establishment of socialism. Nothing else can save us from the misery of the present or the nightmare of the future. To oppose socialism now, when 20 million Englishmen are underfed, and fascism has conquered half of Europe, is just suicidal. It's like starting a civil war when the Goths are crossing the frontier. And therefore, it's all the more important to get rid of that mere nervous prejudice against socialism, which is not founded on any serious objection. And as i pointed out already, many people who are not repelled by socialism are repelled by socialists. Socialism is now presented, and as it's presented, is unattractive largely because it appears at any rate from the outside to be the plaything of cranks and doctrinaires and parlor Bolsheviks and so forth. But it is worth remembering that this is only so because cranks and doctrinaires etc have been allowed to get there first. If the movement were invaded by better brains and more common decency. Well, then the objectionable types would cease to dominate it, and for the present one must just set one's teeth and ignore them. They'll do much smaller when the movement has been humanised, and besides, they are irrelevant. We've got to fight for justice and liberty, and socialism does mean justice and liberty when the nonsense is stripped off. It's only the essentials which are worth remembering. To recoil from socialism means so many individual socialists are inferior people is absurd as refusing to travel by train because you dislike the ticket collector's face. And secondly, as to the socialist himself, well, especially the vocal tract writing type of socialist, we are at the moment when it's desperately necessary for left-wingers of all complexions to drop their differences and hang together. Indeed, this is already happening to a small extent. Obviously, then, the most intransigent kind of socialist has now got to ally himself with people who are not perfect in agreement with him. As a rule, he's rightly unwilling to do so because he sees the very real danger of watering the whole socialist movement down to some kind of pale pink humbug, even more ineffectual than the parliamentary Labour Party. At the moment, for instance, there is great danger that the Popular Front, which fascism will presumably bring into existence, will not be genuinely socialist in character, but will simply be a manoeuvre against German and Italian, not English, fascism. And thus, we need to unite against fascism, and the need to do that might draw the socialists into alliance with his very worst enemies. But the principle to go upon is this. But you are never in danger of allying yourself with the wrong people, provided that you keep the essentials of your movement in the foreground. And what are the essentials of socialism? What's the mark of a real socialist? Well, I suggest that the real socialist is one who wishes, not merely conceives it as desirable, but actively wishes to see tyranny overthrown. Well, I fancy that the majority of orthodox Marxists would not accept that definition, or would only accept it very grudgingly. Sometimes, when I listen to these people talking, and still more when I read their books, I get the impression that to them the whole socialist movement is no more than a kind of exciting heresy hunt, a leaping to and fro of frenzied witch-doctors to the beat of tom-toms and the tune of the fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of a right-wing deviationist. It's because of this kind of thing that it is so much easier to feel yourself a socialist when you're amongst working-class people. The working-class socialist, like the working-class Catholic, is weak on doctrine and can hardly open his mouth without uttering a heresy but he has the heart of the matter in him. He does grasp the central fact that socialism means the overthrow of tyranny, and that the Marseillaise, if it were translated for his benefit, would appeal to him more deeply than any learned treatise on dialectical materialism. At this moment, it's a waste of time to insist that acceptance of socialism means acceptance of the philosophic side of Marxism and plus adulation of Russia. The socialist movement has not time to be a league of dialectical materialists. It's got to be a league of the oppressed against the oppressors. You've got to attract the man who means business. You've got to drive away the mealy-mouthed liberal who wants foreign fascism destroyed in order that he may go on drawing his dividends peacefully. The type of humbug who passes resolutions against fascism and communism, in other words against rats and rat poison. Socialism means the overthrow of tyranny at home as well as abroad. So as long as you keep that fact well to the front, you'll never be in much doubt as to who who are your real supporters. As for minor differences and the profoundest philosophical difference is unimportant compared with saving the 20 million Englishmen whose bones are rotting from malnutrition. The time to argue about them is just afterwards. I do not think the socialist need make any sacrifice of essentials, but certainly he will have to make a great sacrifice of externals. And it would help enormously, for instance, if the smell of crankishness, which still clings to the socialist movement, could be dispelled. If only the sandals and the pistachio-coloured shirts could be put in a pile and burnt, and every vegetarian teetotaler and creeping Jesus sent home to Welling Garden City to do his yoga exercises quietly. But that, I'm afraid, is not going to happen. What is possible, however, is for the more intelligent kind of socialist to stop alienating possible supporters in silly and quite irrelevant ways. There were so many minor priggishnesses which could so easily be dropped. For Take, for instance, the dreary attitude of the typical Marxist toward literature. Out of the many that come to my mind, I'll give just one example, it sounds trivial but it isn't. In the old Workers' Weekly, one of the forerunners of the Daily Worker, There used to be a column of literary chat of the books on the editor's table type. For several weeks running there, there was a certain amount of talk about Shakespeare, whereupon an incensed reader wrote to say, Dear Comrade, we don't want to hear about these bourgeois writers like Shakespeare. Can't you give us a bit something like a bit more proletarian, etc., etc.? The editor's reply was simple. If you will turn to the index of Marx's capital, he wrote, you will find that Shakespeare is mentioned several times. And please note that this was enough to silence the objector. Once Shakespeare had received the benediction of Marx, he became respectable. That is the mentality that drives ordinarily sensible people away from the socialist movement. You do not need to care about Shakespeare to be repelled by that kind of thing. Again, there's the horrible jargon that nearly all socialists think is necessary to employ. When the ordinary person hears phrases like bourgeois ideology and proletarian solidarity and expropriation of the expropriators, he's not inspired by them. He's merely disgusted. Even the single word, comrade, has done his little dirty bit towards discrediting the socialist movement. How many a waverer has altered on the brink, gone to some public meeting, and perhaps self-consciously socialists dutifully addressing one another as comrade, and then slid away, disillusioned, into the nearest four-ale bar. And his instinct is sound, because where is the sense of sticking into yourself a a ridiculous label such as which even after long practice can hardly be mentioned without a gulp of shame. It's fatal to let the ordinary inquiry get away with the idea that being a socialist means wearing sandals and blurbling about dialectical materialism. You've got to make it clear that there is room in the socialist movement for human beings. or oh, the game's up. And this raises a great difficulty, It means that the issue of class, as distinct from mere economic status, has got to be faced more realistically than it is being faced at present. I devoted three chapters to discussing the class difficulty, and the principal fact that will have emerged, I think, is that though the English class system has outlived its usefulness, it has outlived it and shows no sign of dying. It greatly confuses the issue to assume, as maybe orthodox Marxists so often do, and see for instance Mr Alex Brown in some interesting book The Fate of the Middle Classes, that social status is determined solely by income. Now economically, no doubt, there are only two classes, the rich and the poor. But socially... There is a whole hierarchy of classes, and the manners and the traditions learned by each class in childhood is not only very different, but, and this is the essential point, generally persists from birth through to death. Hence, the anomalous individuals that you will find in every class of society. You find writers like Wells and Bennett, who have grown immensely rich and yet have preserved intact their lower middle class nonconformist prejudices. You'll find millionaires who cannot pronounce their H's, and find pretty shopkeepers whose income is far lower than that of the bricklayer, who nevertheless consider themselves and are considered the bricklayer's social superiors. You find boarding school boys ruling Indian provinces, and public school men touting vacuum cleaners. If social stratification corresponded precisely to economic stratification, the public school man would assume a Cockney accent the day his income dropped below £200 a year. But does he? On the contrary, he immediately becomes 20 times more public school than before. He clings to the old school tie as to a lifeline. And even the h less millionaire sometimes he goes to an elocution class and learns a BBC accent, seldom succeeds in disguising himself as completely as he would like to. It's a fact of very difficult to escape culturally from the class into which you've been born. As prosperity declines, social anomalies grow more common. You don't get more H less. Millionaires, but you do get more and more public schoolmen touting vacuum cleaners and more and more small shopkeepers driven into the workhouse. Large sections of the middle class are being gradually proletarianized, but the important point is that they do not, at any rate in the first generation, adopt the proletarian outlook. Here I am, for instance, with a bourgeois upbringing and a working class income, and what class do I belong to? economically I belong to the working class, when it's almost impossible for me to think of myself as anything but a member of the bourgeoisie. I suppose I had to take sides, and if I had to, then whom should I side with? The upper class which is trying to squeeze me out of existence, or the working class whose manners are not my manners? It's probable that I, personally, in any important issue, would side with the working class, but What about the tens or the hundreds of thousands of others who are in approximately the same position? And what about that fat, larger class running into millions this time, the office workers and the black-coated employees of all kinds, whose traditions are less definitely middle class, but who would certainly not thank you if you called them proletarians? All of these people have the same interests and the same enemies as the working class. All are being robbed and bullied by the same system. Yet how many of them realise it? When the pinch came nearly, all of them would side with their oppressors and against those who ought to be their allies. It's quite easy to imagine a middle class crushed down to the worst depths of poverty and still remaining bitterly anti-working-class in sentiment. And this being, of course, a ready-made fascist party. Obviously, the socialist movement has got to capture the exploited middle class before it's too late. And above all, it must capture the office workers, who are so numerous that if they knew how to combine so powerfully, equally obvious it has been so far failed to do so. The very last person to whom you can hope to find revolutionary opinions is a clerk or a commercial traveller. Why? Well, very largely, I think, because of the proletarian cant with which the socialist propaganda is mixed up. In order to symbolise the class war, there has been set up the more or less mythical figure of a proletarian, a muscular but downtrodden man in greasy overalls, in contradistinction to a capitalist, a fat, wicked man, in a top hat and a fur coat. It's tacitly assumed that there is no one in between. The truth being, of course, that in a country like England, about a quarter of the population is in between. And if you're going to harp on the dictatorship of the proletariat, it's an elementary precaution to start by explaining who those proletariat are. But because of the socialist tendency to idealise the manual worker as such, that's never been made sufficiently clear. How many of the wretched, shivering army of clerks and shopwalkers, who in some ways are actually worse off than a miner or a dockhand, think of themselves as proletarians? Hmm? A proletarian, so that they have been taught to think, means a man without a collar, so that when you try to move them by talking about class war, you only succeed in scaring them. They forget their incomes and remember their accents, and they fly to the defence of the class that is always exploiting them. So socialists have a big job ahead of them. They have got to demonstrate beyond the possibility of doubt. Just where the line of cleavage between exploiter and exploited comes. And once again, it's a question of sticking to essentials. And the essential point here is that all people with small, insecure incomes are in the same boat, and ought to be fighting on the same side. Probably, we could do with a little less talk about capitalist and proletarian, and a little more about the robbers and the robbed. But at any rate, We must drop that misleading habit of pretending that the only proletarians are manual labourers. It's got to be brought home to the clerk and the engineer and the commercial traveller and the middle-class man who has come down in the world and the village grocer and the lower-grade civil servant and all the other doubtful cases that they are the proletariat and that socialism means a fair deal for them as well as for the navvy and the factory hand. They must not be allowed to think that the battle is between those who pronounce their H's and those who don't. For if they think that, they'll join in on the side of the H's. I'm implying that different classes must be persuaded to act together without, for the moment, being asked to drop their class differences. And that sounds dangerous. It sounds rather too like the Duke of York's summer camp and that dismal line of talk about class cooperation and putting our shoulders to the wheel, which is eyewash or fascism or both. There can be no cooperation between classes whose real interests are opposed. The capitalist cannot cooperate with the proletarian. The cat cannot cooperate with the mouse and if the cat does suggest cooperation and the mouse is fool enough to agree, then in a very little while the mouse will be disappearing down the cat's throat. But it's always possible to cooperate so long as it's upon a basis of common interests. The people who have got to act together are all those who cringe to the boss and all those who shudder when they think of the rent. This means that the smallholder has got to ally himself with the factory hand, the typist with the coal miner, the schoolmaster with the garage mechanic. There's some hope of getting them to do so, if they can be made to understand where their interest lies, but this is not going to happen if their social prejudices, on which in some of them are at least as strong as any economic consideration, are just needlessly irritated. There is, after all, a real difference of manners and traditions between a bank clerk and a dock labourer, and the bank clerk's feelings of superiority is very deeply rooted. Later on he will have to get rid of it, but it's not a good moment for asking him to do so, and therefore it would be a very great advantage if that rather meaningless and mechanical bourgeois baiting which is all part of the nearly all socialist propaganda could just be dropped for the time being.' Throughout left-wing thought and writing, the whole way through it, from the leading articles in the Daily Worker to the comic columns in the News Chronicle, there runs an anti-genteel tradition, a persistent and often very stupid jibing at genteel mannerisms and genteel loyalties, or in communist jargon, bourgeois values. It's largely humbug, coming as it does from bourgeois baiters who are bourgeois themselves, but It does great harm because it allows a minor issue to block a major one. It directs attention away from the central fact that poverty is poverty, whether the tool you work with is a pickaxe or a fountain pen. And once again, here I am... With my middle-class origins and my income of about £3 a week from all sources, for what I am worth, it would be better for me to be on the socialist side than to turn me into a fascist. But if you are constantly bullying me about my bourgeois ideology, if you give me to understand that in some subtle way that I am an inferior person because I have never worked with my hands, you will only succeed in antagonising me. For you are telling me either that I am inherently useless or that I ought to alter myself in some way that's beyond my power. I can't proletarianise my accent, or certain of my tastes and beliefs. I wouldn't do so if I could, and why should I? I don't ask anybody else to speak my dialect. Why should anybody else ask me to speak his? It would be far better to take these miserable class stigmata for granted and emphasise them as little as possible. They are comparable to a race difference. And experience shows that one can cooperate with foreigners, even with foreigners whom one dislikes when it's really necessary. Economically, I'm in the same boat with the miner, the navvy, the farmhand. Remind me of that and I'll fight at their side. But culturally, I'm different from the miner, the navvy and the farmhand. I lay emphasis on that and you may harm me against them. And if I were a solitary anomaly, I shouldn't matter because... What is true of myself is true of countless others. Every bank clerk dreaming of the sack, every shopkeeper teetering on the brink of bankruptcy, is essentially in the same position. These are the sinking middle class, and most of them are clinging to their gentility under the impression that it keeps them afloat. It is not a good policy to start by telling them to throw away the life-belt. There is quite obviously a danger that "'In the next few years large sections of the middle class "'will make a sudden and violent swing to the right, "'and in doing so they may become formidable. "'The weakness of the middle class hitherto "'has lain in the fact that they have never learned to combine. "'But if you frighten them into combining against you, "'you may find that you have raised, raised up a devil. "'We had a brief glimpse of this possibility "'during the general strike.' To sum up, there is no chance of writing the conditions which I described in the earlier chapters of this book, or of saving England from fascism, unless we can bring an effective socialist party into existence. It will have to be a party with genuinely revolutionary intentions, and it will have to be numerically strong enough to act. We can only get it if we offer an objective which fairly ordinary people will recognise as desirable. And beyond all else, therefore, we need intelligent propaganda. Less about class consciousness and appropriation of expropriators, bourgeois ideology, proletarian solidarity, not to mention the sacred sisters, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, and more about justice and liberty and the plight of the unemployed. Unless about mechanical progress and tractors and the Dniper Dam and the latest salmon canning factory in Moscow, that kind of thing is not an integral part of socialist doctrine, and it drives away many people whom the socialist cause needs, including most of those who can hold a pen. All of that is needed is all that's needed is to hammer two facts home into the public consciousness. One that the interests of all exploited people are the same and the other, that socialism is compatible with common decency. As for the terrible, difficult issue of class distinctions, well, the only possible policy for the moment is to go easy and not frighten more people than can be helped. And above all, no more of those muscular, curate efforts of class-breaking. If you belong to the bourgeoisie, Don't be too eager to bound forward and embrace your proletarian brothers. They may not like it. And if they show you that they don't like it, you'll probably find yourself and your class prejudices are not all that dead as you imagined. And if you belong to the proletariat by birth or in sight of God, don't sneer too automatically at the old school tie. It covers loyalties with which, well, they can be very useful to you if you know how to handle them. And yet, I believe there is some hope that when socialism is a living issue, a thing that large numbers of Englishmen genuinely care about, the class difficulty may solve itself more rapidly than now seems thinkable. In the next few years, we shall either get that effective socialist party that we need, or we shall not get it. And if we do not get it, then fascism is coming.' probably a slimy, anglicised form of fascism, with cultured policemen instead of Nazi guerrillas, and the lion and the unicorn instead of the swastika. But, if we do get it, there will be a struggle, conceivably a physical one, for our plutocracy will not sit quiet under a genuinely revolutionary government. And when the widely separate classes, who necessarily would form any real socialist party, have fought, side by side, they may feel differently about one another. And then, perhaps, this misery of class prejudice will fade away, and we of the sinking middle class, the private schoolmaster, the half-starved freelance journalist, the colonel's spinster daughter with £75 a year, the jobless Cambridge graduate, the ship's officer without a ship, the clerks, the civil servants, the commercial travellers, and the thrice-bankrupt drapers in the county towns. They may sink without further struggles into the working class where we belong. And probably, when we get there, it will not be as dreadful as we feared. For, after all, we have nothing to lose but our H's. The End